Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. It says, as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them, called them and said, do you, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, I'm just going to tell you straight up, we're not going to spend too much time on this section tonight for a couple of reasons. One, we've already seen Jesus heal two other blind men back in Matthew chapter 9. Go back with me to real quickly to Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 37. Let's kind of remind you of what we looked at a while back when we were in Matthew 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 37. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See to it that no one knows about this. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And so we'll just stop right there. We get, so here we've already seen Jesus heal two blind men, and we're not the same story here in Matthew chapter 20. It's a different situation, two different blind men, but we spent a lot of time already on Jesus' purposes and those types of things. Also, look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, real quick, to remind you of some of the reasons why Jesus is healing. He's displaying his power, and he's also proving his authority to forgive sins. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise and pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So we've already seen Jesus do many miracles in our following of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew here. He's doing it to prove his power and that the kingdom of God is there and greater than the kingdom of Satan. He's also proving his authority to forgive sins. But there are a couple of things in this passage for tonight in Matthew 20 verses 29 through 34 that I think we are to pull out from this section that will be helpful for us not only tonight but also prep us for chapter 21. All right, the first thing I want you to see is that Mark and Luke's account, and we're not going to read those tonight. I want you to go look at them. Other times I've had us read them, but for the sake of time and what we need to cover, I'm not going to read Mark and Luke's account. But Mark and Luke's account of this encounter only mention one blind man, but they give us his name. It's in Mark's, Mark and Luke's account that we see that the leader of these two guys, the one who does most of the speaking, is a man named Bartimaeus. Does anybody know what Bartimaeus' dad's name was? Timaeus, very good. Some of you guys have either read the Bible or you know a little bit about the fact that the word bar means son of. That's why he, Jesus calls Simon son of John. He actually, in some of your Bibles, it's Simon bar Jonah, right? Bar Timaeus means son of Timaeus. There is a man who was blind. His father's name was Timaeus. His name is Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. Um, but even though these two men are blind, 
they had enough spiritual insight to know who Jesus truly was. Look again. What do they call him? Lord and what? Son of David. And then, of course, they cry out, have mercy on us. In calling Jesus Lord and the Son of David, they were acknowledging that he was the promised, prophesied Messiah. This is important. This is happening again. What's happening? It's happening in this time that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. He's going to go through all the trials and everything. As he's heading to Jerusalem, on the way, as they're leaving Jericho, we see that this guy, these two blind men call out, one of them named Bartimaeus, and they call him Lord, and they call him the Son of David, and they say, have mercy on us. Now, in asking for his mercy, they're acknowledging their sin, and that to be healed was to not receive what they deserved. I don't know if you, you probably do know this, but I'm going to remind you, the reason that there's death, the reason there's sickness in this world is because of what? It's sin. The penalty for sin is death. Because of sin back in the garden, the curse came on man and their bodies and the earth. And the reason there are pandemics and all this stuff going on, it all ties back to original sin. And that's what it is from. And when God heals and when God forgives, it's in his mercy. He's not giving us what we deserve. And so when they cry out and they say, Lord, Son of David, they're acknowledging that he's the promised Messiah from the Scriptures, but they're also saying, have mercy on us. In other words, if you heal us, it's not because we've earned it or we deserve it, it's because of your goodness and you're not giving us what we deserve. Go to Psalm 51. A lot of us know Psalm 51. We're only going to look at verses 1 through 9. It's where David cries out to God after he finally is convicted of his sin with Bathsheba. But I wonder how many of you have ever really noticed what he says at the very, very beginning of his prayer. In Psalm 51, look at verses 1 through 9. Have mercy on me, O God. I'm going to stop real quick and just say this to you. How many of you, when you've asked for forgiveness, and I hope everyone in this room and everyone watching online has asked for forgiveness, how many of you have added to that, I'll be good? How many of you added to, I'll try to do better? No, Lord, if you forgive, it's because of your mercy. I'm deserving of everything that's coming to me. But I don't want everything that's coming to me. I don't want everything that I'm deserving of. If I'm going to experience forgiveness, and I'm going to experience salvation, and if I'm going to experience heaven, if I'm going to experience rewards for eternity, it's not because I've earned it. It's because not only you're generous, but it's also because you're merciful, and you don't have me experience everything that I deserve. Lord, have mercy on me, he says. God, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. By the way, when Jesus died for you, what was your condition when he died for you? According to the scriptures, you were, you were still a sinner, right? When we were sinners, Christ died for us. It's because of his steadfast love for us. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And it's because of his grace that he gives us even more than we would ever imagine on top of that. Folks, never, ever, ever, ever lose sight of the fact that your salvation and everything else that comes with it is simply because God loves you and he's merciful and he's gracious. The reason I say that is because the world and Satan will continually try to convince you otherwise. 
How many times have we heard people say, well, if God were loving, and then fill in the blank? And how many times have we heard people say, well, how could a loving God? And how many times we've heard people say, where is God? How could God? Satan and the world are out there to convince us that God's against us, that he's not for us. And even though God himself has proven it through his cross, through his son, through the scriptures that say that we, when we were his enemy, he sent his son for us. It's because of his steadfast love. And David knows the heart of God and he cries out, have mercy on me. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now let me ask you a question. If David writes here, let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. How could a loving God break someone's bones. Well, let me just give you a little help before you answer it. David actually writes, and actually it's not not David, it was the psalmist Asaph. He actually talks about how when he was in sin, he was like a brute beast before God. David also writes in another psalm that when he was under conviction because of his sin, it was like his bones were drying out and he was being broken. You do all understand that when God convicts us of our sin, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, when we grieve over our sin, when God breaks us to help us realize our sin condition, it's because of His love. Because until we realize our need, we'll never cry out for His help. It's in His love that He convicts. It's in His love that He points out sin. But what does David say? I am guilty. I need mercy. I need mercy. What do we do when stuff like this happens in the world? We think, what can we do to get God to move? Let's get together and sing, come up with a plan to do something to get God to act. Folks, you still don't get it. We need to be crying out for his mercy. He has every right to wipe us off the face of the earth. What we need to do is call out and say, Lord, This is all because of sin, and you're right in your judgments. But we're asking for your mercy. We're asking for your grace. I also don't want you to miss back here in Matthew 20 that even though Jesus knew what they wanted, he still had them ask. You ever think about that? Jesus says, what do you guys want me to do for you? Was it because he didn't know? Of course he knew. Actually, in James chapter 4, the Bible says in verses 1 and 2, we don't have because we don't ask. But I want you to look at Matthew chapter 6. Look at verses 7 and 8. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Jesus is teaching on prayer, and he says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So Jesus already knew what they wanted. Why? Is he wanting them to tell him and to ask, what do you want me to do for you? Okay, that's a question. 
I'm not talking just to the camera anymore. I have people in the room. Why do you think he wants us to ask? Okay, that's a part of it in some instances, Jeremy. Jeremy's answer is so that we can line up with his will. He definitely wants a conversation with us, that's for sure. So a lot of times we have a tendency to ignore him, and this gets us talking with him. But there's more. Bill, were you going to say something? It, oh, it already left you. Okay, I understand. Yes and no. To a degree. I'm a little leery of people that say if you just speak it, it happens. That, that's, that puts us in charge and not God. There's more to it than that, and here's what it is. Listen closely. God wants us to realize that everything we get is from Him. Everything we get is from Him, and so He'll say, ask me. But you already want to give it to me. I know that, but I've designed it that you ask me so that when it happens, you'll know where it came from. How often have we come across a, a dollar or a $20 bill on the coin. Hey, look, I found some money. Well, that's not what the scripture says. Go to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Look at verses 17 and 18. James chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Every good thing comes from God. And he's got a lot of things that, I'm going to just say it to you. We heard it in James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, like I just quoted. A lot of us don't have because we don't ask. God's got things he wants for us, but until we ask him, he's not going to give it. Because he's waiting for us to ask. And sometimes we do ask, but then the scripture goes on and says, he says no, because our reasons aren't lined up with his reasons in John chapter 3, go to John chapter 3, look at verse 27. In John chapter 3, verse 27, listen to what John the Baptist says. John the Baptist answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. Did you catch that? A person can't receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. Deuteronomy chapter 8, you can look at it later on, around verses 17 and following, says, Don't ever think that your strength and your right hand have gotten you the wealth that you have, for it's God who determines whether or not we make any money. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says this, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is a message that I've just had the privilege of putting together, and I'm going to be preaching at a church in the area in a couple of weeks, and it deals with the fact that there's a tendency in Christian churches for, well, let me just ask this question. Have any of you ever heard someone say in a church, I'm a charter member? My family has been here how long? I'm going to blow that all up in this message that's coming up, but I'm going to show you that scripturally there's a bad attitude to think that you have been here longer than somebody and you've earned more than they have. There's a dangerous attitude because the Bible is very clear that everything you have came from him. Paul even said in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, he said, by the grace given to me, I say to each one of you not to think of yourself more highly than you ought. In other words, the reason I'm even in the authority to command you the way I am is because God's given me that role. I don't think I've earned it. Go ahead. Exactly. The thief on the cross did not have a whole lot of time to do anything, and it's by the grace of God that he got heaven just like everybody else. 
That's where we're going to be going. We're going to be breaking down Matthew chapter 20, where they have the parable of the workers in the vineyard and how the ones that worked all day got paid the same as the ones who worked only an hour. Folks, but there's that attitude in all of us that we think God owes us something or people should respect us more because of how hard we've worked, how much I've been there, how committed I was. You still don't understand every good thing comes from God. And so he tells them, what do you want me to do when he already knew? Because when it happens, they'll have to acknowledge it came from him. Everything does, but we lose sight of that fact. Lastly, from this section, notice how Jesus healed and what was his emotion towards them when he did it. Go back to Matthew 20 and again, look at verse 34. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. What was Jesus' attitude toward them when he healed them? Compassion, pity. I want to just take you real quick and just... I'm going to do this fast. If you can keep up with me, great. If you can't, that's fine. Just listen along. The ladies on the computers here are going to do their best to try to send you the scriptures out online. Matthew chapter 15, look at verse 32. Matthew 15, verse 32. The scripture says this. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm willing to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. He cares about every little thing. He knew how long they'd been there. He knew whether or not they'd eaten. He knew how long they'd each traveled. God knows. God cares. You're on a trip this summer and your tire goes flat. He knows where you are and what's going on. Every detail. He just wants you to call out to him. He cares. Listen to Isaiah chapter 49, verses 8 through 16. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 8 through 16. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to to apportion the desolate heritages saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, and on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by strings of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy. O heavens, and exult, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Here, by the way, is a promise to Israel from God that in the last days he's going to gather them from all the nations. If you remember our study of the book of Revelation, a lot of those passages reminded us of the fact that all the mountains are going to be made low and the valleys are going to be leveled up and everything's going to be flattened and everybody's going to be able to come back. And he's going to lead them by streams of water and he's going to bring them back. And God says to Israel... Can a nursing mother forget her child? I would never forget you. And even though you feel like I have, I haven't. But you say, Jim, that's to the nation of Israel. Well, don't you remember? 
For us in the church, all the promises for Israel are ours now. He's not done with Israel and He's going to finish and do everything He's promised, but all those things that He said to them, that's His heart toward us who are His children. What did He tell us when He was heading to the cross? In John 14, He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to go to the Father and the Holy Spirit's going to come and indwell you and be with you forever. Folks, listen to me. God cares. He has compassion. He healed them in pity and compassion. Listen to John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verses 32 through 35. And here is one of the verses that you probably first memorized because it was the shortest in the Bible. John chapter 11, verses 32 through 35. The scripture says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. Of course, some others say, well, couldn't he have opened the blinds, kept this guy from dying? Listen closely, though, folks. Listen closely. Did Jesus know that Lazarus was going to rise from the dead? How do you know this? Because he had already said so. This will not end in death. He'd already told his disciples, let's go. He already knew how it was going to come out. Yet he doesn't say to them, quit crying. Quit your wope moping. He saw how much they hurt. He saw how much they grieved and he cared and he cried with them. Go to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, the scripture says this. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were, like, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Therefore, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Ask me. Ask me. Pray to me. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Do you realize God cares about people getting saved more than you do? Again, I could go on. There's many more scriptures, but I think you get the idea. God cares. Now, I hammered that for a reason. We're living in a time in which Satan's amping up his God doesn't care rhetoric. If you think back to the conversation between God and Satan in the book of Job, God, Satan says, the God, the only reason Job worships you is because you've made it good for him. You let some bad stuff happen and he'll curse you to your face. Of course, after the second time through, what does his wife say to him? Curse God and die. God doesn't care. Satan will be continually trying to convince you that God doesn't care. Folks, he does and he can't prove it any more than he did through the cross. Go to Matthew 21. See, I told you we weren't going to spend too much time on that one. We only spent 27 minutes. All right. 25. We started late. All right. Matthew 21. Look at verses 1 through 17. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. 
untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, their, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now remember, we've already seen this in our previous studies. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to do what? To die. He's going to be handed over to the chief priest, teachers of the law. They're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. They're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to kill him. But three days later, he's going to rise. But as he's going into Jerusalem, he turns to his disciples and he says, I want you to go ahead and I want you to go ask this guy to use his donkey. If he has any problem, just say the Lord needs it and uh, he'll, he'll let you do it. The disciples go, found it just as he had said. And he comes, and the donkey's there in her colt, and Jesus rides on the colt, and everybody starts putting their coats on the ground and cutting palm branches and laying them on the ground. Uh, a lot of people don't realize it, but when this is happening, Jesus is fulfilling at least two prophecies. Now, one of them you probably all know and should know because Matthew quoted from it here in Matthew 21. It's in Zechariah chapter 9. Go to Zechariah chapter 9. Look at verse 9. I'm going to read it to you quick because uh, we just read it in Matthew, but we'll read it again in Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, the scripture says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So here they knew the prophecy. And as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this donkey, everybody starts cutting their coats, or taking their coats off and cutting the palm branches and throwing them down. I'm going to deal with that in just a second. But there's another prophecy that's being fulfilled at this exact same moment that most people don't know about and most people don't realize. If I were to ask most Christians today what prophecy was being fulfilled when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, they'd all say, Zechariah 9.9. And I'd say, you're right, but that's only one of them. Do you, does anybody know what the other prophecy is that's being fulfilled right now? And if you don't, that's okay. That's what I'm here for. It's not in Isaiah. Good guess, though, because Isaiah's got a lot of great prophecies. It's in Daniel. Go to Daniel chapter 9. Go to Daniel chapter 9 and look at verses 20 through 27. Now, I'm just going to tell you now, it's not going to jump off the page at you. 
but I hope to show it to you. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 20 through 27, if you read the whole chapter, you'll see that Daniel's been praying. He realizes that God's prophecies prophecy through Jeremiah, that their captivity in Babylon was going to be 70 years. That time period's coming to a close, so he starts praying about Israel being released from captivity in Babylon back into the land. And Gabriel comes, and we start in verse 20. It says, while I was speaking and praying, Daniel says, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, that's Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come to out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Con therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks, or seventy-sevens, are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. By the way, in the Hebrew, it literally says Messiah. Till the coming of the Messiah, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. And he, this false prince to come, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator." As he's been praying about the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, Gabriel comes and says, let me give you some more information about the history of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and the city of Jerusalem and the Holy Mount to bring everything to conclusion. And he said, from the decree to restore Jerusalem, there's going to be seven sevens. That's, by the way, we know from history, 49 years. The word seven or weeks in some of your Bibles is like our word dozen. If I say I have a dozen something, what do I have? Twelve of what? We don't know. The word dozen tells us that it's twelve of something. The word sevens or weeks is like the word dozen. It's seven of something. But now we know from history and from the scriptures that 77s are 77 year periods, which if you know anything about math is a total of 490 years and Daniel is told by Gabriel, and he's given insight to understand, he said, from the decree to restore Jerusalem, there's going to be 49 years, seven sevens. And then after that, there's going to be 42, sorry, 62. No, 62. Thank you. Very right. My brain would jump into the wrong one. There'll be 62 weeks after that or 62 sevens after that. So if you do that math, that's 434 years when you add in the 49 you're missing one seven-year period. Remember, it's 490 minus 483, which we've gotten to. And the Bible said here that there's one last seven where this false Christ is going to come and do all that stuff. That's the tribulation period still to come. But don't miss what the prophecy said. 
The prophecy said that there was going to be from the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And by the way, write this down, look at it later on. Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, show us exactly when that happened. When Nehemiah was given the permission and the decree by King Artaxerxes in 445 BC, in the month of Nisan, to go back and rebuild Jerusalem, the clock started. And it took roughly 49 years for them to complete the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem. If you remember, it took them a while and they had to fight while they did it. And then there was going to be 62 weeks, or 62 sevens, 434 more years, until the Messiah, the Anointed One, comes. Does anybody want to take a wild guess on how many years it had been between when Nehemiah was told to go back and rebuild the city and the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem? Exactly 483 years to the day. When he's riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, he's not only fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. He's fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. You can go back, you can double check me, you can do the study, you can do the math, it's there. The Jews calculated every year is 360 days, not 365 like we do with leap years. Every year was a 360-day calendar. But it literally adds up to the day that Artaxerxes gave the decree until the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem exactly 483 years later to the day. But Israel's been put on hold, as you know, during the church age. Romans chapter 11 says that they've experienced the hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Jesus has come and proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord. Israel's just been put on hold. He's doing his thing with the church age. It's going to come to a close very soon as he raptures his church. And then he's going to finish what he started with Israel. Oh, by the way, the Bible says that when the Antichrist comes on the scene, there's going to be a one-world government, one-world religion. People are going to not be able to buy or sell unless they have the mark. And folks, let me just ask you a quick question. Are things not in place for that right now? Is the world not ready for a one-world government, a world health organization, a world whatever? And they want everybody to be on some kind of a list. We're real close, folks. The time's coming to an end. The church age is coming to a close and there's one last seven year period that will literally be fulfilled like the first 483 were. But that day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the prophecy said exactly the day the Messiah would come. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, though, Many people are receiving him as the promised king, the promised Messiah, and they're acknowledging him as king. That's what they're actually doing by laying their coats on the road. Go with me real quick to 2 Kings chapter 9. Go to 2 Kings chapter 9, look at verses 11 through 13. In 2 Kings chapter 9, a prophet has been sent to anoint Jehu as the next king of Israel. In 2 Kings 9, look at verses 11 through 13. It says, When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? That's the prophet that had just come in and just run out of the house. And he said to them, You know this fellow and, the, and his talk. And they said, That's not true. Tell us now. He said, Thus and so he spoke to me and said, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. 
When they took their coats off and laid them down for Jehu to walk on down those steps, they were saying, you can walk on us. We're your servants. You're the king. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, many were honestly acknowledging him as the promised king. Not only that, go to Psalm 118. They're actually calling out and quoting from a psalm, a prophecy about the coming king. Go to Psalm 118. We're going to look at verses 19 through 29. In Psalm 118, starting in verse 19, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. By the way, that's what Hosanna means. Save now. Save us, Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? That's what they were calling out, isn't it? We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So this is all going on now where Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. People are praising him. They're calling out, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is not only fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, he's fulfilling the prophecy of Daniel 9. How do you think Jesus is feeling right now? You may be surprised. He actually knows that this praise is going to be short-lived. Because he knows the hearts of people and he knows what's going to happen next. And actually, I'm going to show you two passages about this that may surprise you. Go to Luke first. Go to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, look at verses 28 through 44. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28. Eight. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. 
For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they'll not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus actually wept on that day when he got to Jerusalem because he knew this was a short-lived praise and they were going to turn on him. Go to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39. Matthew 23, verse 37 says this. Jesus is speaking, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, did Jesus say this in Matthew 23 before or after Matthew 21? It's after. This is after Matthew 21. In Matthew 21, we see him go into Jerusalem and they're all saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But a few days later, he says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you know why? That psalm we read, Remember Psalm 118? It won't be ultimately fulfilled until Jesus comes again and sets up His kingdom on the earth. You remember in that prophecy, this is the day the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. Do you remember in that prophecy it said, this is the stone that the builders has rejected? He hadn't been rejected yet. They're praising Him, but they're going to reject Him. It's when He comes back that it will be fully fulfilled, the prophecy will. That's why Jesus says, after they've already said, blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord, he says, you won't see me again now until, at this point in his, his, his history, until you say it for real when I come back. Folks, I don't know if you know this or not. Go to Acts chapter 3. The Bible actually tells us in Acts chapter 3 what all went on, what is going on right now, and what is going to happen. I really want you to take some time to meditate on Acts chapter 3, verses 11 through 21. Listen to Peter's sermon here. In Acts chapter 3, verse 11, he had just been used by God to heal this man. Well, this man clung to Peter and John. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, whom he had decided to release, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man, this, this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive 
until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. I love what Peter says. Yes, you rejected him. Yes, you denied him. Yes, Pilate was going to release him and you wanted Barabbas instead. And you handed over the author of life and you had him put to death. But that was to fulfill all the prophecies that said it was going to happen this way. And listen, God's not mad and done with you. He's offering you salvation. He's actually going to turn what you did. And he already knew it was going to happen into something amazing. If you will, by faith, believe in this Jesus, repent of your sin Acknowledge your need of this Savior who's died for you and risen from the dead. Listen closely. You'll be forgiven. And times of refreshing will come from the Lord. That's for us, by the way. You know the Bible says that inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Outwardly, yes, we're wasting away. But inwardly, we have the ability, if we learn to rest in Christ and spend time in prayer and fellowship with the Lord and let His Word speak to our hearts, we have a time of refreshing every single day from the Lord that's available to us. And He is in heaven right now. Until when? The time for restoring all the things spoken by the prophets. Oh, by the way, that prophecy in Daniel of the 77s, and we've already looked at how there's only one seven left. Was that for the church? No. 77s were decreed for Israel and the city of Jerusalem. There's a difference between the church and Israel. When God's done with the church age, He's taken us to be with Him. And He'll finish that one seven-year period called the tribulation period and at the end of that, Jesus will come back and fulfill all of the prophecy there in Daniel 9. But what is available to us today? When we're saved, times of refreshing can come from the Lord on a daily basis. And if you're not experiencing that, you're missing out. You're missing out. Because you have within you Jesus himself living daily, wanting you to lay your flesh on the altar, renew your mind, let his truth speak to your heart, and inwardly you can be renewed day by day. Why? Because you don't look to the things that are temporal, but you look to the things that are eternal. You set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. And folks, those of us who are in this world, in this life, who are experiencing tribulation, even though it's not the tribulation period, we can have joy and peace because times of refreshing are available to each of us today. By the way, how sincere are your words of praise to Jesus? Remember, he knows your hearts. Go to John chapter 2 real quick. Actually, we'll go, to Matthew. go to Matthew 15 first. So go to Matthew 15 first, then Matthew 7, then we'll go to John, John 2. So Matthew 15... Verses 7 through 9. I want to just show you the scripture says and shows us very clearly how God knows our thoughts and knows our hearts. Matthew 15, Matthew 15, verse 7. Jesus says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He knew. Even though they were saying the right things, he knew their heart wasn't in it. Go to Matthew 7. Look at verses 21 through 23. Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. By the way, were there a lot of people 
who were calling out, Lord, Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who just in a few days were going to be calling out, crucify him. Go to John chapter 2. Look at verses 23 through 25. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Remember Jesus in the upper room that night that he was being betrayed? When they were taking the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal, he said, one of you is going to betray me. And everybody was like, clueless. Now I'm going to encourage you though. You say, Jim, that wasn't very encouraging. You just showed us that Jesus said, you honor me with your lips, but your heart's not in it. There's going to be many who say you don't, that you don't know him. And uh, even though they believed, he wouldn't entrust himself. How's that an encouragement? Here's how it's an encouragement. If you'll humble yourself and not promise to love God better, because remember, you can't. Every good and perfect gift comes from who? What do you have that you didn't receive? Let me say something to you that's going to blow your mind a little bit. Do you want to love God more and have it be real in your heart? You have to ask Him to do it. You can't do it. You have no ability to love Him better. And many of us have been taught, okay, Jesus has done this for you. Now you need to live for Him. Let me help you out. Been there, done that, tried it, failed, can't. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verse 5. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Some of you would like to love Him a little bit more, like to be a little more perseverant in your faith. Don't try to do it. Ask God to do it and believe that he will. And watch God give you a heart of love for him. Isn't that amazing? May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the perseverance of Christ. That's why I told you a while back that one of the greatest prayers in the Bible is, Lord, I do believe, help my unbelief. And I don't know about you, that matches my life a lot. I do believe, but I sure could believe more. And I can't, and I want to. But he's been teaching me how to trust him and to ask him. Now, as we wrap up our section of Matthew for tonight, I want to pull out a couple of things real quick from Jesus' cleaning of the temple. And I do mean by real quick because we only got seven minutes left. This is actually the second time that Jesus had to clean out the temple. A lot of people may not realize this, but if you go back, we don't have time to have you turn there, but go to John chapter 2 later on, verses 13 through 22. John 2, 13 through 22. You'll see that Jesus on the first beginning of his ministry, right after he called his disciples. Remember in John chapter 2, he does the miracle of the wedding of Cana in Galilee. Then he goes and he cleans the temple out. And you'll look at that account, and it's totally different from what happens here at the end of his ministry. At the end of the three years, he does it again at the end. The two accounts are totally different. What Jesus says in the one is different from what he says. What he quotes and what they quote are different what happens next, everything's different. They're not the same account. So he did it at the beginning of his ministry in John 2, but the other Gospels record what he did at the end. But also you'll 
Notice that in this one, go to Matthew 21 again. Look at verses 12 through 17. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then it goes, people were coming and he'd heal him. And the children were crying out, Hosanna, the son of David, and the Pharisees were indignant. And Jesus says, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you've prepared praise? So here's what I want to point out to you real quick. When Jesus quotes, my house should be called a house of prayer, he's actually pointing them to the coming kingdom. In Isaiah chapter 56, we got time to go there real quick. Go to Isaiah 56, look at verses 1 through 8. In Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8, we see a prophecy about the coming millennial kingdom. In Isaiah 56, verses 1 through 8, Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And not, let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs and who, who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbaths and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Jesus is saying when he says my house should be called the house of prayer, he's pointing until the day when he comes back and sets up his kingdom on the earth. And at that time, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles who are included in God's plan in his kingdom will be welcomed into the temple. But at the same time, he also then says this. He says, but you've made it a den of robbers. And for years, I thought Jesus was just saying, you guys are just buying and selling and cheating people. But he actually was quoting scripture there again. Go to Jeremiah 7. You're in Isaiah, turn over to Jeremiah 7. In Jeremiah chapter 7, the nation of Israel has been living in disobedience to God, but they keep saying, oh, but we got the temple, the temple. Listen to what God says, the word that came to Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 1, from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I'll let you dwell in this place. Don't trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner or the fatherless or the widow or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I'll let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your forefathers forever. Behold, you trust in deception words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered, only to go to his own, uh, go, go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. 
Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you didn't listen. And when I called, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen and all the offspring of Ephraim. As I was reading this to you, I really feel like God's telling me that we're just going to stop tonight. And we're going to pick up here. Because there's so much here that will launch us where we need to go next week that I really don't want to rush through this in finishing my notes for tonight. But let me just say this to you. We'll pick up here next week. Jesus, in cleaning out the temple, called out and quoted two Old Testament passages. One, a promise of a future day with a kingdom that will not be shaken. A kingdom where he rules and reigns in righteousness and the Jew and the Gentile are all welcome in his presence. But between then and the time he was in, he knew that there was going to have to be a destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple and all that. And he said, you've made it a den of robbers. And when in doing so, he was quoting from this passage, which we'll pick back up with next week, which prophesied that because of their disobedience and acting like everything's okay, he was going to have to destroy the place. There's a lot for us to learn. Plus, we're also going to look next week at the fact that when the the religious leaders came and said, do you realize what these kids are saying? When Jesus said, have you not read out of infants you've ordained praise? Let me point something out to you, and we're going to look at it in detail next week. Jesus was literally saying, I'm God. Because he quoted from a prophecy in a psalm that was a full praise to God. And when he said, have you not read that they're going to praise me? He was literally saying, I am am God. By the way, did that change their attitude by the end of the week? Hopefully ours will. I love you. We'll see you next week.